Hey folks, how's it going? Jovan Hutton Pulitzer here. Thank you for joining me on tonight's broadcast. Do me a favor, share the program right now because you're going to make sure that your friends and family listen to somebody out there that has the pulse, I think, of everything going on. And it's an interesting combination of an intellectual, right? Uh, and an academic and uh, somebody, I think, who really gets it. Uh, I promised you this before, Darren JBD's Revolver News. Uh, I tagged him, the journalist who gives a fuck, because I watched something he said. And we've talked about that, right? We've talked about how journalists just don't seem to care what's going on with what they write and how it's destroying our country. So do me a favor real quick. Share this right now. Make sure you subscribe. You can watch for me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Twitch, Gitter, Rumble, Telegram, etc. Um, and a shout out to all the people listening. As you know, I, as I do this, I do my terrestrial radio program. If you're a city that has Real Talk 93.3 FM, thank you for tuning in. Here we go for tonight's program. I'm going to do a special edition. We're going to just eliminate the commercials because what we need to do is, look, Revolver News is is a uh, easiest way to describe it if you've never been there and people rave about it. Think about it as an aggregator site news aggregation. So I've decided that's the way I'm going to approach uh, this guest. We're going to throw out the words, let them go. This is a man that can give you insight on just about it all. Here we go. Get ready, folks. Here we go for tonight. Cut the crap. How many times a day do you want to say that to politicians, the elite, the loony liberals, the fake news media, and the gender-confused, emotional, socialist, snowflake crowd? Cut the crap. It's your secret weapon for fighting for our freedoms and our great republic. It all begins with a massive mental enema, freeing you from the toxic news and politically correct views, which constipate your consciousness with stinking thinking. Your host, Joe Von Hutton Pulitzer. He's known for calling out politicians and telling them to cut the crap. You've seen him on virtually every television network and listened to him on Coast to Coast Radio. And now he's here to help you learn to fight for America. Culture, race, and American politics, they all have one thing in common. They all need to cut the crap. Now, here's your host, Joe Von Hutton Pulitzer. Hey, folks, welcome to the program, Jovan Hutton Pulitzer. And as you know, if you've never tuned in before, uh, CRAP, it stands for Culture, Race, and American Politics. It is the crap that continually screws us up. My guest this evening is uh, Darren Beatty. You read him all over the place. The guy has great influence and stuff. I'm just amazed at what you've done because even though you're uh, an incredible academic, uh, I'm, what should I call you, a math head, a geek head, I don't, know, I don't know what it is, right? But you seem to have, well, should I say, your stuff together. And everybody, literally, um, when I said we were going to do this broadcast, went nuts that we were going to have you on. So you've struck a chord with America. Darren, just do me a favor. Uh, I don't want to get into long readouts, intros and stuff. I want to get right to it. But give people just a little bit about your background, would you please? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I have a history as an academic. Um, I was a uh, professor at Duke University of Political Science and Political Theory. And I distinguished myself there, among other things, being the only non-tenured full-time academic in the country to have publicly supported Trump. 
and really the only faculty member at Duke to have correctly predicted the outcome of that election. And, and so I made, made a lot of friends along the way. And I moved from there to the uh, White House under Trump, where I was a speechwriter and policy aide uh, to the president there. And I went on to uh, be an advisor and consultant to various political figures. And my most recent venture, which is uh, an exciting thing, it's quite new, it's not even two years old, is Revolver.News, which is, as you mentioned, partially an aggregation site. We originally marketed as sort of the new Drudge Report, and many people very happily and enthusiastically use it that way. But it's actually much more than that. It's become, I think it's safe to say, the best investigative news uh, outlet, um, certainly on the right and maybe generally. Uh, we've uh, put certain concepts on the map like color revolution, which I understand we'll talk about in a bit. We released um, really a one-of-a-kind, first-of-its-kind groundbreaking study analyzing the efficacy of the COVID lockdowns, um, which made a big splash and had a tremendous amount of influence. And probably most recently, we've been known uh, nationally for our investigative reporting on January 6th, um, pointing out really disturbing discrepancies uh, of the official narrative there and the very, very strong possibility, even near certainty, that there was uh, some substantial federal involvement similar to what we saw in the Michigan case, which just totally collapsed. The uh, Department of Justice is humiliated recently, and there are so many strong parallels to January 6th. And so Revolver is really a great place to get your daily news aggregation, but it's also, I'm very pleased to say, at the forefront of very, very powerful and maybe even a little bit dangerous um, investigative reporting that, frankly, a lot of people are not... Uh, that inclined to touch. I uh, one, I would say it's brave and ballsy. A lot of the stuff covered. I I've never seen people rave about a news site, but they rave about Revolver. People uh, across the board rave about it. How it's everything's there. It's short and concise. The whole bit. Let's dive into a few of these things you mentioned, uh, Duke. Let's go back to 2016 for the scholars and writers in support of Trump. Mm -hmm. That probably wasn't a very uh, academic thing to do. Tell us about that. And tell us what the repercussions were when you came out saying Donald J. Trump is the man America needs. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. So I had taught a course in Germany for a while called Left, Right, and Center that I later transposed to Duke and refashioned it in order to push out a thesis that I had. And that was that the underlining logic of our political coalitions had become obsolete and that there was a really essential reconfiguration in the making that was necessary. And sure enough, um, just as I was teaching this course, we saw the phenomenon not only of Trump, who certainly upended the uh, Republican Party in many interesting ways, but also Bernie Sanders on the other side. And so it was a kind of interesting and satisfying thing to see the confirmation of the course's new thesis sort of in real time as political events unfolded. Um, 
I managed to get myself invited to a panel among faculty to discuss the election. And as I pointed out, I, was, I predicted that Trump would win. And I said, I, I, welcome, uh, I welcome this outcome. I hope he does win uh, for a variety of reasons. I emphasized at the time his position on immigration and also his position on foreign policy. He was challenging the kind of pro-war consensus that was really dominant, not only on the right, but also uh, in Hillary Clinton in various sectors of the left, which we can talk about. Um, and so that, of course, generated a lot of controversy, made a splash. And so afterwards, some people were saying, hmm, you know, you can basically count on your hands how many academics have publicly supported Trump. So we're going to compile a list and maybe, you know, uh, uh, buttress some uh, you know s public sense of social proof, saying that it's okay to come out, and that had you know uh, mild success, I would say. Not a lot of people really wanted to put their reputations on the line that early on during the primary. When Trump ended up winning the primary, as is human nature, a lot of people came in afterward and sort of then reinvented Trumpism according to their you know. Uh, old views without really the underlying software up updates that I think really animated his earlier supporters. And so it's that interesting phenomenon in politics where being right early is not always the boon that it is in business ventures and in uh, the market and so forth. It's all about timing. And sometimes being too early can actually be to one's disadvantage. You should let the other people do the hard work and take the risks. And then if they turn out to be right, then you can come in in that second wave. And then basically most people think you've been there all along. And so that's an interesting phenomenon to see politically. But um well, you yes. definitely took a risk, but there had to be some back. I mean, you're a rare jewel among uh, scholars and academics who can actually come out and say you're supporting this conservative cause and person for the right person at the right time. What was the backlash within the academic community for you? Because I know it made you a target. Maybe we'll get into CNN making a target out of you. But right. what was the backlash back then? Well, you know, the backlash is Interesting. There was some backlash amongst fellow graduate students, some among faculty, not as much as you'd expect uh, from the students. In fact, I remember the morning after the election, I walked into the classroom and one of the students who had been at the uh, panel discussion where I predicted that Trump would win, he just blurted out, oh, Darren Beatty is a genius. He said that, which, you know, I'm not saying I'm a genius for predicting that, but it was very satisfying to see that, like even the students kind of thought, oh, maybe I disagree with him, but I can respect the fact that he came out publicly and put the reputation on the line. And so it was really the people who are more kind of invested in academia, the faculty and some of the some of the graduate students who were upset. But even a lot of the faculty members, frankly, were good. And so I I can't really have anything that bad to say about uh, uh, Duke. And uh, even though in the broader scheme of things, a gesture like that amounts to a performative resignation letter. It wasn't even like, you know, I was fired or like, you know, I, it wasn't anything like that, but it was, um, it was time to move on from academia. And then sure enough, I got lucky. I ended up in the white house. So could it could have been worse. That happens to be an awesome ride. Hey, let me just kind of ask you a question. I know back in your history, you worked for Robert Bork. You were a law yes. clerk. No, I was not a law clerk. No, I was uh, no, I was 
far too young to be a law clerk, and also I'm not a lawyer. I, I, uh, okay. I have a, okay. a PhD in political science. I did not have a uh, a JD, so I never went to law school. I was a, a research associate for him, okay. and so um, yeah. But I'm happy to talk about that because please do, was, please uh, do, because I think it's very interesting. Tremendous and experience. About your time there, and you know, it's one of those things. I have the opportunity, happy opportunity, to reflect on that time. Uh, uh, which was now a while ago. Uh, but Judge Bork, for those who don't know, was probably the preeminent um, conservative uh, legal theorist in the 20th century, certainly the second part of the 20th century. He essentially developed the theory of originalism that guided the jurisprudence of you know, uh, people like Scalia to Thomas to really anybody. He was a towering figure who excelled in multiple domains of the law, which is rare. He was a solicitor general. He was an acting attorney general. Infamously, he uh, was the one who performed the so-called Saturday Night Massacre, uh, firing a special prosecutor who was going after Nixon. Um, he was a very, very well-established uh, antitrust lawyer, basically totally reinvented uh, antitrust law. And then, of course, he became a uh, judge on the D.C. Um, circuit. And, and then his name, unfortunately, became a uh, verb in the, right. in the English dictionary to Bork. And that was really a, a cultural inflection point that, you know, what we understand today to be the nomination process, that whole kind of sordid ritual of a bunch of dumb politicians questioning somebody far superior to them, at, at least which was the case with Bork. That's not right. necessarily the case now. But um, if anybody has some free time, just kind of wants a blast from the past that's somewhat informative, go and watch those Bork hearings because he, he gave a master class on what it meant to have an absolute command of the law. He answered the questions with polish, with grace, with sophistication, uh, everything you could really want. The problem was he was too honest. And so it was really is an inflection point for a lot of reasons. It was a cultural inflection point because he was really the first person to get hit with that mass sort of cancellation machinery, which wasn't as intense as it is now with social media, but it was using the media apparatus to really slam him in a way that was somewhat new as a kind of political phenomenon. It was very dirty stuff uh, that they did with him. And just incidentally, uh, the two principal figures behind those attacks were um, uh, Kennedy, uh, Senator Kennedy, and Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Wow. <laughs> and Joe Biden. Yeah. So go, go and go and watch, uh, go and watch those clips. And so, unfortunately, that didn't work out. He ended up uh, not being confirmed to the court, which was a sad thing for the country, sad thing for him. But it ultimately was a uh, a benefit to me because he ended up in a think tank and. Um, I worked at the think tank and I ended up being his research associate and worked very closely with him uh, for over two years, which was a yeah, tremendously, tremendously gratifying uh, intellectual experience. And I can say he's truly one of the most remarkable and intelligent um, and really commanding 
uh, 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 people that I've that I've ever met. He had some definitive views on Roe versus Wade, and appropriately today with this horrible leak. I mean, one what they now call a borking back then it was pretty back in that time but boy i'm telling mm -hmm. you now it's brutal but of course you have uh you know brown jackson it was just a layup of intellectual dishonesty what was his feelings on roe versus wade well you know it, it's he became a social conservative and converted to catholicism and so he had sort of a personal and religious perspective, which was anti-abortion. But from the jurisprudential perspective, he would look at Roe v. Wade through the lens, through the kind of interpretive lens of originalism, which is the theory that he basically uh, developed to guide the way that people should uh, evaluate these constitutional questions. And really, the answer is quite simple, is that if you look at the history leading up to the Roe decision, this so-called right to privacy, which didn't really exist anywhere. There's no right to privacy in the Constitution. Um, it's very bizarre how it came to be, and there's a sort of history of, of constitutional decisions leading up to that. One of the key landmark decisions is uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, which I just have it up on my Twitter now. People should check me out on Twitter, at Darren J. Beattie, and I uh, uh, put out the relevant passage in the Griswold decision from Justice Douglas, who talks about where this right to privacy comes from. And it's literally like this. I'm not even exaggerating. It's something like, well, we kind of see there's certain rights in the First Amendment which seem to pertain to privacy. There's a right from, you know, protect against unwarranted search and seizure. There's all these things that kind of look like privacy. And you know what? Collectively speaking, you kind of see the emanations from penumbras, which is like the shadow emanating from this collective overlap of putative privacy rights throughout the various Bill of Rights that amount to a general right to privacy. And there's no kind of guidance, principled guidance as to how to apply that right to privacy, but it encompasses something like contraception. And so... That was later used in order to justify um, the the Roe decision. And so um, this is the kind of thing that Judge Bork was very much against. He was very much against this sort of reading rights out of thin air because you don't know where the principle ends. You derive the principle in a seemingly arbitrary manner. And if you derive it in an arbitrary manner, you by necessity have to apply it in an apply arbitrary it. manner, which so conveniently ends up to align with the political preferences of whatever the judge was uh, deciding at the time. And so, like, why should a right to privacy encompass um, things like, you know, abortion, not, uh, you know, cover other things that could perhaps more intuitively be you know, considered to privacy? There's no principle that you can apply neutrally that would give you a sense of how uh, far this alleged right extends. And so that kind of, it was really from the, the jurisprudential side, what Bork did not like was the um, really abandonment of any type of principled legal reasoning that was required, not only for Roe, but for the whole host of these war and era decisions that really, um, completely 
reimagined, to use a term, reimagined the whole constitutional, cultural, and bureaucratic architecture of the country. We, it, it is the wildest times ever. That's why I named the program I did. It, it, when you mix culture and race and you mix it in with American politics, it becomes this nasty uh, arsenic creating the slow suicide of our great nation. Let's just do a few rapid fire things. Just a few comments on it and kind of give us just a wrap around. First, uh, January 6th, your uh, stance on it, and then color revolutions. I'd like to touch on those two. That's a great question. Well, January 6th, again, incredibly broad. I couldn't possibly do justice to it in the scope of this conversation. So I urge people, take my challenge. Go to revolver.news, go to the exclusive section, read everything that we've done on January 6th. But in particular, read the part one and part two of our series covering an individual called Ray Epps. If you have any reasonable doubt that there was something deeply and darkly fishy about January 6th and the official narrative, then I don't know what to say. Never go to revolver.news again. But nobody can pass that challenge. I think I'm very confident nobody can, in good faith, read our reporting on this and say with confidence, look, nothing fishy went on. There's no government involvement. This is totally above board. It was just this insurrection that people said. And it's because there's so much to say, I'll just briefly put it this way, because so much of the talking is really done by the video footage itself, which is right. tremendously compelling, and that I can't do justice to that with speech. So I'll only say that if you have any initial intuitive misgivings about the idea that, oh, our government just doesn't do that sort of thing. That, you know, I know, I know the Dems are bad, but the U.S. government and the national security state would never sort of engineer something like this in order to put forth this agenda that amounts to basically weaponizing the national security apparatus against Trump supporters and conservatives. They would never do this. Well, I could go through the entire history of the FBI to refute that intuition, but I don't need to go through the whole history. I just need to go back a few months before January 6th to this so-called Michigan plot, which again, the entire regime media was howling about this. They were saying, oh my God, there are these domestic terrorists, Trump supporting neo-Nazi white supremacists, uh, you know, killers. <laughs> They're the most evil threat since ISIS, worse than ISIS, worse than Al-Qaeda. They make Al-Qaeda look like, uh, you know, whatever. That's how the media was covering this. And boy, was the story uh, different. And it so it's it's quite amazing. They the the public version of this, the common version is this the Mi Mi Michigan Whitmer kidnapping plot. But it right. also involved this plot to storm the Michigan state capitol. Hmm, sound familiar? That's that's a very familiar plot. So there's this plot to storm the Michigan state capitol that involved this militia group known as the Three Percenters, which just happens to be one of the three major militia groups imputed to January 6th. Right. And um, it turns out that 12 out of the 26 so-called plotters turn out to be either federal informants or actually agents of the FBI. And as this case unfolded, it became clear that the people actually implicated, they had 
really took no proactive steps toward this so-called conspiracy at all. All of the money, all of the prodding, all of the conceptualization, this was coming from the agents and informants themselves to go right. them on who had a professional and financial incentive to do so. And it came out specifically that I'm telling you, they talk about not sending their best and not hiring their best. Forget about the informants for a second. Let's talk about the FBI agents on this case. One of the FBI agents on this case was arrested in the middle of the trial for beating the hell out of his wife on the way back from a swingers party. <laughs> That's one of the guys. I'm not making this up. The other main FBI agent on the case um, was not allowed to testify because it turned out that he was moonlighting in this bizarre private security group that he promoted by means of a pseudonymous Twitter account where he gave away confidential details pertaining to the cases that he was involved in. And so he turned out to not be allowed to talk. One of their key informants was actually weirdly arrested in the middle of the case as well. The government ended up accusing him of being a double agent and went to tremendous lengths to prevent him from going on the stand and being allowed to testify on behalf of the defense. And, and just as a cherry on top, a really interesting detail that shocks people who are just learning about this. So the head of the Detroit field office of the FBI who oversaw this Really, you can't can't call it anything but an entrapment operation. Right. His name is Stephen D'Antuono. The day after these so-called plotters were arrested, and remember, 12 out of the 26 turned out to be feds, the day after these arrests occurred, FBI Director Christopher Wray promoted Stephen D'Antuono to the D.C. field office where he went on to oversee the January 6th investigations. You, know, you just you just can't make it up. There, there are so many striking parallels, and this just sets the stage within which to look at the even more disturbing discrepancies and details of January 6th itself, which, again, would require multiple hours to do justice to. So I have to direct your audience. Go to revolver.news and read this. If you're just learning about this now, you owe it yourself to yourself to read it because it's not just about the fate, uh, fate of the poor people, many of whom are locked up in solitary confinement for no good reason. This is, yeah, it's important what happens to them, but this is bigger than that. This is about the whole country because guess what? The government, the regime is using the false narrative about January 6th in order to justify their domestic war on terror, in order right. to justify repurposing the entire national security apparatus in this country to become the personal political weapon of the ruling class that hates you. So uh, everybody really has a stake in understanding what's going on here. Absolutely. Let's, let's touch on color revolutions. Most people don't understand it. Let's just do a brief, your views, what's going on, how it works, et cetera, color revolution. Again, this is such a big topic. Uh, and I would have to say uh, prior to the coverage of January 6th, Revolver is best known for coverage on the color revolution. We did a, an extremely influential series on this. And really the reporting and analysis here emerges out of a key observation. And that is this, that... Yes, we talk about there's this vocabulary about the deep state, which I think is kind of imprecise. And 
yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, it's just, it doesn't land. That's the thing is deep state is so general that it's not threatening. And so when we talk about the specific faction of the national security apparatus, this color revolution faction, the right. regime went absolutely crazy. Not as crazy as they went after us after the January 6th stuff, but very close. The regime went absolutely crazy when we started talking about color revolutions because this implicates a very specific sub-faction within our national security apparatus. This is a sub-faction that happens to be obsessed with governments in Eastern Europe and Russia and happens to perceive the rise of populism at the time, 2014 to 16, the, the big events were uh, Brexit and Donald Trump. This same network within the security apparatus, we'll call them the Atlanticist faction, perceived the emergence of populism in the way that they perceived, say, the rise of a so-called authoritarian leader in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and so forth. And what they did, given that this is the tools they had available, is they said, hmm, we're going to attack this domestic threat of populism with the same tools that we use to overthrow authoritarian regimes we don't like overseas. And that tool, the principal tool that they have is the color revolution model, which involves mass mobilization of protesters, right. ginning up um, and really aggravating pre-existing ethnic and gender tensions in order to facilitate the mobilization efforts. It ironically, given that now the kind of stolen election narrative is mostly a thing on the right for, for good reason, but you'll recall that prior to the election of 2020, it was actually the regime media that was saying that uh, Trump's going to steal it and uh, ginning up fear that Trump would steal it and using that as a pretext to mobilize a bunch of NGOs, to mobilize mass protests, to mobilize Black Lives Matter and all of these sort of lawfare organizations. And that is another key feature of the color revolution is using various mechanisms like this to mobilize uh, uh, mass protests and really egg it on through full spectrum dominance of the media apparatus and then pushing it so far that there's some type of response from the authorities that you then loop into the media narrative to justify an even stronger um, mobilization on the part of the groups that you're operating. And you see the it's called color revolution because some of the paradigmatic examples are, for instance, the orange revolution in Ukraine and so forth. And this isn't just a theoretical thing. Literally, the same people whose portfolio was color revolutions in Eastern Europe were the people deploying these same tools domestically against Trump. And just in a kind of ironic twist, one of the people who've just went apoplectic at her reporting on cover, color revolutions. At the time, she was a little-known uh, Harry Potter aficionado and amateur musician called Nina Yankovic. And she went on about how it was dangerous and harassment and uh, we were, we were uh, purveying and trafficking in Russian disinformation because we dared to call out this uh, certain subspecies of the national security state and sure enough, this individual is now the 
uh, disinformation czar, the uh, head of the newly formed disinformation governance board housed within the Department of Homeland Security. So it's it's funny how things work out. You know, you talk talk about a rags to riches trajectory here. You go from uh, Harry Potter, Wizard Rock, to uh, being one of the designated commissars of the regime, although I would say that's probably a demotion if you really look at it. That's true, and it was very also was very bad. Harry Potter, Wizard Rock. At the, at oh that. yes, it was a horrible question. Let's try to do this in like maybe five words each one. I'm just interesting. Five words where you would sum these people up. First one, Joe Biden. So five words for him. If you can sum them up in five words. <sighs> um, old fashioned, senescent. Um touchy, um, fake. There's so many words I want to say, but I should hold back. <laughs> this is dangerous. It's totally open. I mean, you can say <laughs> this is dangerous even for me, I got to tell you, because, you know. Because you can let it go. You don't, like, you know, there are different levels and you never know what kind of level to engage is um but yeah th those are the words that come to mind uh in a manner that won't uh backfire negatively i've got it okay so let's talk about this same way five words donald j trump um interesting um bold funny Entertaining, um, that's really, those are the three words that come to mind. How much time did you get to spend with man, by the way? Not too much time at all. You know, he wasn't uh, tremendously uh, engaged with his speech writers. And, you know, for, for good reason, uh, his Really, his best stuff was impromptu. He right. had that. He had that gift. He was a naturally excellent speaker. He was in his natural element in the rally, where he was simply extemporizing and not really reading prepared remarks. And so, really, the best thing you could do as a speechwriter sometimes is kind of let him let him do his thing. Uh, and you know, I can't think of a single real memorable thing that he said that was scripted all of the stuff that really sticks comes from him extemporaneously very so. authentic interesting question though and i just thought of this now because in the last few weeks of the administration i was trying to work hard to get us 42 1973 and 84 and us 52 20-701 which basically say protect the ballots mm -hmm. uh make sure that it is on the books with executive order that that means they can be inspected and audited. We don't have to fight for the very things we voted with. And I was told at that time that uh, President Trump was surrounded by enemies in the White House, that mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of people that really had his back. Do you have any comments on that? Well, I, th I think that's really not even not even uh, contestable at this point. Um, you know, really the question is who was actually on his side? That's an easier question is to say who wasn't on his side. Um, 
you know, more and more people we learn from, you know, and, and there's a range of things. There are people who are actively against him and actively undermining him. And there are people who just simply didn't belong there who were able to go along for the ride, but they didn't right. really have the software updates and they really weren't interested in it and like the perks. And so there are a variety of typologies there, but it's absolutely fair to say that he just really didn't have the people around him that uh, that were interested in implementing the agenda that he ran on. And some of the fall for that has to go to him because, you know, it's his job to to pick people. But he was up against uh, he was up against a lot. You know, people forget that, you know, it's nothing wrong about criticizing him because, you know, the, the glory and responsibility go hand in hand. But at the same time, the guy ran against the collective operate uh, opposition of every powerful institution in the country. And even if he did uh, have a better batting average when it came, came to personnel, he was still just really operating uh, uh, against against the current of things. And it's hard to do that. The way that these bureaucracies are structured, they're just not, uh, they're not structured to uh, fall in line when a challenger comes in in that fashion. And so, and he was really the first one to do it in that way. And so, um, you know, I, I think there, there's a lot of justified criticism, but at the same time, it's like he was, uh, he didn't have, he didn't have an easy fight ahead of him at all. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to mash these two up in final comment. Cause I know we're on a time thing here with you and I, I'm going to mash them together cause you cover it in one. I just want to get your comments on Elon and Twitter mm -hmm. and then let's close out with free speech. Great. Well, that's actually a great segue because there are actually interesting parallels between uh, Trump and and Elon here. Um, one interesting parallel is that neither comes out of the institutional right, institutional conservatism, out of the GOP. They're totally outside of it, and I don't think that's an accident. And I think that's more damning to you know conservatism and the GOP and all that than it is you know criticism of that. They're, they they come. They come in fresh in a way and right. uh, fresh and bold. And just like Trump was really, you know, I mentioned he went against the coordinated opposition of every powerful institution in the country, if not the Western world generally. He was the only person on the planet who could have pulled that off. Amen. He was the only person on the planet who could have pulled that off. And similarly, I think Elon Musk is the only person on the planet who could pull off what he's attempting to do or seemingly attempting to do on Twitter. Uh, he has tremendous amount of social capital. He's this yep. kind of um, weird, he's in a weird way. He's this kind of synthesis of Donald Trump and Joe Rogan plus, <laughs> you know, he's well, got the right. kind of this well. technocratic cachet. He's got, mimetic valence he's in tune with the culture of the internet whereas trump is you know public position is anti-bitcoin uh and so um uh, so elon and also as elon doesn't have quite that taint that trump ultimately acquired by by throwing himself into the arena he Elon might, uh, and I think he will get that taint. That's just the nature of being in the fight. You can't avoid it. And that's why so many ultra high net worth people are so risk averse and some might even say cowardly. And so 
I think we really need to give Elon credit so far for being some someone who really built up his businesses by playing the game with the government. Right. Think about it. Tesla, like not to take anything away from him as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, but so much of the narrative power of Tesla came from selling it as this, okay, it's, it's, this is about climate change. It's going to solve all these problems. Um, SpaceX is basically, you know, the U.S. government agreeing, look, NASA's screwed. We're, we've screwed up the space thing, so we're going to hand over the space program to somebody we think is a lot smarter than us and hear a bunch of contracts and basically take over and be the new NASA. And so you don't really get these dispensations from the government by being somebody who's rocking the boat or who the government and regime expects to really rock the boat. And so he lined all of this stuff up and then remarkably, and to his great credit, he's actually using it for good. He's risking it all. It's a very, it all. very rare example of someone in his position really playing for keeps and playing for something more than just, oh, how can I make an extra billion dollars? It's like he, it's, he, he's elevated himself to something much larger than your typical uh, wealthy person, even your typical billionaire, frankly. And I, that goes hand in hand with the follow-up, which is to say, look, he's going to learn and he is learning what Twitter actually actually is. And Twitter is not a business in any ordinary sense. Revolver News published a now kind of, I would say, classic piece really analyzing this and what he can expect if he goes through with it. Um, because Twitter is not an ordinary company. It doesn't operate according to ordinary profit motive. The whatever the um, alleged value of Twitter is, 40 billion, 50 billion, 60 billion, even a hundred billion, doesn't come near what the actual value is for the major stakeholders in the regime in terms of controlling the information flow on the global public square. Very true. Controlling the information flow on the global public square, you can't put a price tag for that. That's existential, especially in a situation right now where the it, regime really is predicated on increasingly absurd lies that require increasingly aggressive modes of censorship in order to sustain them. And so because the regime is really incompatible with free speech at scale, which is what Twitter could potentially provide, Elon's recent moves amount, in my view, to a declaration of war against the regime. And we've only begun to see what the regime can really do when it's engaged in a war that matters to them existentially. That's right. And, we still have uh, to see what they're going to do. Right. Truly. And so we're so we're really at the beginning of this and remains to be seen. I encourage people to go and read the full revolver article. We speculate on some of the tools that the regime has at its disposal, but I think even that's just the start. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. Um the odds aren't in Elon's favor. He's the underdog, but because he's the underdog, he has that mimetic energy on his side, just like Trump did in 2016. And um, and even though he's the underdog, and maybe uh, you know his, his his odds are tough, it's still so important because he's the only actual 
meaningful thing going on right now. Like you see so many things that, you know, are meant to gin up people's emotions, to excite their indignations, to get them to donate money and get interested and get involved and root for their tribe or their team. But ultimately, deep, 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 deep down, we know that it's fake and performative and it's not really going to be a meaningful change. This is something that's different. This, it is. It, if he pulls this off, this is real in a way that we haven't seen anything real for a very long time. That's the stakes involved. And that's why it's so encouraging to see him take the steps that he, that he has. Fantastic. Fantastic. Look, I just want to say thank you for joining in this evening in kind of a close here. Where do you want people to follow you? I know, of course, obviously at Revolver, but where else can they get information or should join you, join your community? What else do you have going on? Go to revolver.news, read us, and if you can, support us. I, I somewhat jokingly say, look, aggravating the FBI isn't the most naturally uh, good business model. So we, we, <laughs> we can always uh, use support and uh, support us uh, financially but uh, by going ad-free or just giving a donation. If you can't do that or don't want to do that, just read our stuff and share it if you like it. I guarantee it's, it's, it's top-quality stuff that you won't see from uh, anywhere else in the media, really. And you can go and check me out on Twitter, uh, at Darren J. Beattie, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-B-E-A-T-T-I-E. Brother, I really appreciate it. Such great insight. Everybody loves you to death. Love what Revolver's doing. I want to thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks thank so you much so for having much. me. Thank you, Take sir. Care. So there you go, folks. I mean, I'm telling you, I've watched the chat doing this. People love Revolver. People love Darren. You, I, I did that because there's just so much to extract from this fellow's brains and opinions and views. I'm pleased. You need to go out to Revolver News. Everybody always asks me, is there anything out there that's totally legit, legit, really good that you should follow? Revolver's it, folks. Revolver's it. Make sure you go follow uh, Darren at uh, Twitter as well. I've got it up on the screen. I want to appreciate everybody uh, joining us tonight. Make sure you share this. People need to be able to hear and see Darren to understand just truly the wealth of information that a lot of y'all know. And I really appreciate you all joining for me. Y'all have a great evening. Take care. Love you all. Bye-bye. Most people are afraid to stand up and speak out, but not you. You've been learning how to tell the system to cut the crap. What can I do to help save the America I love? And the answer is learn how to fight back and tell the system to cut the crap. Cut the crap's not just a radio program. It's a movement. The right kind of movement, which breaks free the conservative constipation and reminds you that you are the majority, and we're just not going to take it anymore. Make sure you're following Joe Bon Hunt and Pulitzer on all social media. See you next week, and between now and then, take a stand and tell them all to cut the crap. But you know what? If we lost the election, we know when we lose. If I lost the election, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. Seriously. The county has refused to produce the network routers. We want the routers, Sonny. The county refused to produce the network routers. Wendy, we gotta get those routers, please. Get up! Get up. The routers. <laughs>
Come on, Kelly, we can get those routers. Those routers, wow! If you got those routers, what that will show. And they don't want to give up the routers. They are fighting like hell. Why are these commissioners fighting not to give the routers? How simple they're to be, that will tell the truth. And they don't want to give up the routers. What are they trying to hide? And I say it, and I'll say it, because the easiest way of cheating is to throw them away. That's easier. The county has refused to produce the network routers. We want the routers, Sonny. The county refused to produce the network routers. Wendy, we gotta get those routers, please. Get it's so unfair. It's so unfair. It's so ridiculous. I, I'll be honest, though. Look, we all like to win. If I lost this election, I could handle it pretty easily. What? Run in 24, sir. You're gonna win. And I say, wait a minute, I just won six months ago. The big lie, they call it. Those trends are unproven. And knowing what happened in the election is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's a good thing. The county has refused to produce the network routers. We want the routers, Sonny. The county refused to produce the network routers. Wendy, we gotta get those routers, please. Get up! If you think about cancel, everything about cancel culture, they want cancel culture. But what they don't want to do is anything having to do with the 2020 election. We have no press. We have no voice. They almost got away with it. They may have gotten away with it. And I've got to tell you, I've got to say this. I've never said it before, but I've always thought it. I get along with Putin because that's a good thing, not a bad thing. The county has refused to produce the network routers. We want the routers, Sonny. The county refused to produce the network routers. Wendy, we gotta get those routers, please. Get up! Get up! The coconut nut is a giant nut If you eat too much, you get very fat Now, the coconut nut is a big, big nut But this delicious nut is not a nut It's the cocoa fruit It's the cocoa fruit Of the cocoa tree Of the cocoa tree From the cocoa palm family